told you there were two major events in the history of Israel. One is the Exodus, the other is what we call the exile. It's when the children of Israel, having been a nation and having lived in their unfaithfulness, and God finally, and I think if we go back to the prodigal son story, or what I call the parable of the incredible father, this is the, the kind of time where you've spent out all of your inheritance and now you've got nothing left and you end up with the pig farmer. You end up enslaved in a culture that's not like your own. And it's out of that culture, hopefully, and this is what the prophets are saying, that hopefully in that season, you'll begin to look up and realize you do have a redeemer and you do have a God. And so God allows the captivity to happen. God allows not only Assyria to conquer Judah at one point, but then Babylon eventually conquers Assyria and then Babylon comes now and conquers the, the nation of Israel. And this is, as I said, 140 years after, Judah fall, after Israel falls, Judah falls. And so we have then what we call the, the post-exilic prophets, or the, excuse me, the exilic prophets. Those, and those are fancy academic names for those that prophesied during the exile. There's some major prophets here in terms of size and style, and there's some minor ones here, but that doesn't mean their message is major or minor. So in the collapse of the kingdom that, that's come, now we're talking about that period just after Isaiah and not quite to Nehemiah in this very narrow time frame. We're now talking about Jeremiah who began his prophecy before the fall. He's kind of one of those that bridges the two. He, he starts before the final fall. He's still alive after. Jeremiah of, of the prophets, one, I resonate so much with Jeremiah. I love that he shares so much personally from his life that there's all kinds of nuggets in, in all of these about even how we follow God today under the new covenant. It's not all the threats and all that stuff. That's not where you're going to find it. But you're going to find it underneath all that, God's unrelenting love. You've been unfaithful to me, but I still want to be faithful to you. Yet there is some of that, yeah, there's some of that very hard language of God talking about, I divorce you and I hate this. And again, you have to wonder, is this expressing who we see God to be in Christ? Or is this a misunderstanding? They're seeing a God out of, the, out of their own well of shame, if I want to use that analogy. And God's allowing these things to happen. And so we see him as angry when he may just be passionate. He may just be redemptive. And yet the perception is angry. The perception is he's turned against us. He's turned his face against us. When God's actually continuing, and this comes through the prophets themselves, God's actually doing what he's doing to bring people out of their whole self-satisfied idolatry, sinful culture, inviting them back into a reality. And the prophets have become the voice of the culture to that. And they're, the interesting thing that goes on during this time, there's prophets that God raised up. And because prophets got to be just a wonderful voice to the culture, there's prophets that the kings raised up. They had these things called the school of the prophets. And that was to teach you how to be a prophet. And it was to teach you how to be a prophet for those God hadn't called to be prophets. These are the prophets that are the false prophets that are saying what the king wants to hear. That's what they've learned. It's funny today when I see New Testament groups, they have something they call the school of the prophets. And it's to help people with prophetic whatever, get together and talk about prophetic stuff. And they don't realize using the very name of a fake school for what they're probably doing as well. They were trying to teach people to be prophets who aren't prophets. Because if God's called you to be a prophet, he's equipped you to hear him. That mostly has happened out in the woods somewhere. That hasn't happened in some academic institute that gives you the formality of a prophet and teaches you how to speak in deep voices and say, thus saith the Lord and all that hoopla. But these are real people God inspired to speak to a culture. And these, the ones we're talking about now, 
actually wrote down a lot of that. So Jeremiah is writing a lot of this down. It is between the times. Jeremiah, Isaiah, I didn't say this about him. Isaiah is a very depressed guy. Isaiah got a wonderful calling from the start. He said, how long, O Lord, do you want me to prophesy? And he said, until everyone in Israel rejects you. That's a calling for you. And he, he does complain about that from time to time. Jeremiah is not so much complaint. He's scared a lot. He's, he's dealing with, boy, he's, everybody's against him. And he's saying things people don't want to hear. And other prophets are saying things that are more popular because they're saying stuff that's popular. And you're saying stuff that isn't. And it's, there's great encouragement here for a person who's living in the truth versus people who just want to say stuff to sell videotapes and books and suck up to the whole celebrity culture we have. So there's some great encouragement there. Lamentations... Again, Jeremiah's writing, this is after the fall of Jerusalem, and lament it is a lament. It is a painful, painful crying out of all that we've lost and all that's been destroyed. Understand God's perspective of, I had to destroy this because it was destroying you. Hopefully this captivity turns your heart back to me, and I bring you back to the place. And there's always in the prophets, there's this, not only the captivity, but there's a promise of restoration yet to come. Lamentations is that cry. And it's the, one of the verses we looked at earlier, that cry of Lamentations 3, which is so good. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. One of our best hymns comes out of the, one of the most pain-filled books of the Bible. This lamenting of the loss of, of, uh, of Jerusalem. And then we've got a lot of prophets. Obadiah, he's talking to Edom. He's not even talking to Israel. And basically what he says to Edom is, because you're rejoicing so much over Israel's demise, I'm going to get you too. You know, you just got to be careful when you're rejoicing and God doing a work in someone else that leads them to a tough place and you're finally excited they're getting their comeuppance. You're more older brother than Jesus at that point. You're more, yeah, I want the wicked punished. And so he says to them, you're about to get it. Nahum, he's talking again, uh, I think his, uh, if I remember the notes right, Nahum's got his own thing to uh, some of the other groups of people around the Israelites. And again, God's speaking to those cultures as well. And then actually in captivity, we've got three stories that come out. Ezekiel's story is written from Babylon and the whole wheel in the middle of the wheel, the vision that he sees. And Ezekiel is just a lot of incredible visions. And he's seeing this vision. What he's seeing is, but the God of the temple has come to be with the people in Babylon. And that was mind-blowing of the day. Because again, God's in the temple. And now the temple's been destroyed and they're in captivity and God's abandoned us. That's, that's the whole construct of their thinking leads them to that conclusion. So Ezekiel comes along and says, no, God's come with us in captivity. God was never limited to that temple. And it, it begins, here's where the narrative moves forward again, this revelational flow. God wasn't in the building. He can join you here. And the things they had in, when they were in, in Israel, the temple and the feasts and the festivals, now those get compromised when they're living in a foreign country. They don't have the same freedoms. They don't have the same celebrations. They don't have their own locusts to do that. And so they don't have kings to lead them. It's during this time of captivity that things begin to emerge. We don't have a lot of it in Scripture, but we know it through extra-biblical writings that it's during this time that the high priest emerges as the political leader. He takes the place of the king. So that's why when you get to the New Testament, you have things like synagogue, baptism, high priest. Those things are pre-existing Christ. That Christ comes into a world in which now the face of Judaism has changed. A lot of those changes came during this captivity. 
The synagogue was the place to meet on the Sabbath to get together and to encourage each other and to read the Torah and to encourage. They didn't have a temple to go to. They didn't have another way to do that. The chief priest, they had priests in these various groupings. And then the chief priest was the political leader. They began to form their own little denomination with an institutional hierarchy and a president at the top of it who got to be the chief priest. And then the chief priest, when Jesus gets here, here's where that's morphed into it. Here's brothers encouraging people in crisis, in captivity. By the time Jesus comes, Caiaphas, the high priest, has a dungeon in his basement. I was at that dungeon. I was in the basement. This is a class A archaeological site in Israel. In Israel, we don't have a lot of class A sites. The, the ones where this happened here. We have a lot of sites where it happens somewhere around here. And the Church of the Annunciation, there's a lot of things where it could have been here, but most likely not here. Now, there's even two things that compete to be what, what Golgotha is it on that rock or is it under the church of the sepulcher and the tomb where was he buried there's, there's a, we don't know those things this we know this was Caiaphas's house by what they unearthed underneath it in Caiaphas's house you can actually go into the chamber where Jesus was scourged and see the diggings in the wall where his hands were tied and the scooping out of the rock where the salt water was held to splash on the wounds so they make it even more painful. You can stand in the room where Jesus was scourged. That's incredible. It wasn't outside like we, I thought of it. Then you can actually go down into the holding cell. At the time of Caiaphas, they lowered him with a rope. In our time, they've built a staircase. You can go down in the back way. And you go down into this, you go down into this cell. And it's not very big. It's maybe 10 by 10. And they, you go down there, and we were in a group of about 30 people crammed in this room, and they shut off all the lights. It is pitch black. And they said, this is where Jesus was. And then we read a psalm. I read a psalm about, in the darkness you came to me, and you comforted my soul. And oh, it's just incredible. Like, Jesus was here. He was in this room, in this place, in pain and holding on to God, about to face the worst trial that any human being could face, for the, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Amazing to me. These things are happening in a foreign Ezekiel's giving us some of that story and that God's bigger than the temple. God dwells with his people. And, and the whole Ezekiel 34 that we talked about that is so fulfilled in the New Testament... The worthless shepherds haven't led my people well. well. What hope had they? All they had was the law and human effort, and they weren't going to do it anyway. But I'm going to send them my servant David. He will be their shepherd. And then Jesus comes to be the good shepherd. That's Ezekiel. The, the dry bones in the desert, and God calling those bone to bone and sinew to sinew. Great picture, I think. What happens is God invites the church together out of the deadness sometimes of our own tradition and begins to do a number of revivals in the history of the church. And again in our day, God's stirring people away from the rudimentary stuff of religion into the life of God. And we get all that great stuff from Ezekiel. And then uh, Daniel. Daniel's a great story and begins, Ezekiel begins some of it. Daniel takes it more. Daniel's not a prophet. Daniel's just one of the Hebrew kids in Babylon that gets picked to be one of the ones they're going to raise up to be governors and kings and give them positions of authority. And he, he, we read the first, his first six chapters of his book is the Daniel in the lion's den, the children in the furnace of fire. I mean, we, this is a great story of how God's being faithful to Israel, even into captivity. It's not, well, I sent you off. You'll be punished and I'm not going to be there. He was there with them. 
And then you get six chapters on the end of that that are very apocryphal books that begin to talk about prophecy of the end. Some of it's prophecy of the next 400 years of human history leading up to Christ. And some of it is prophecy that's going to be fulfilled at the end of the age. And Roma, Revelation, we talked about yesterday, I think there's something like 404 or 287 of Revelation's 404 verses are allusions to or quotes from the Old Testament. I forget the percent. It was like 68% or 72%. It's in your notes, but is actually from the Old Testament. Because these, these things have already been spoken by God. And John's seeing them again and talking about a future fulfillment of these things. And we get that from Daniel. And then we got this book, Esther. And I'm going to cover, even though I said she was the last book written, it is a book from captivity. She's in Persia much later on. It's probably, we said, 485 to 465. So this is already after the restoration. Most of the Israelites have now returned to the land of Israel. And we're going to talk about it in the next section. But she's out there, a wonderful story. It is for the Jewish people, their understanding of the Feast of Purim and why that got started. And this is the story behind her intercession for the people of God. But there is great encouragement in the story of Esther for someone who's willing to make an incredible stand in the face of adversity at great personal risk to be part of a great redemptive story that God's doing. These books, uh, gee, when you read them, and, and Obadiah and Nahum, some of the smaller ones, when you read those understanding, this is a nation in exile. This is a nation that's lost all their spiritual mooring because they were all based in physical things. And now they're learning to live it out outside those structures. And there's some great wisdom and revelation that God's giving to the people in the midst of that time through these prophets, through Daniel's story and through Esther's.